Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. Welcome to Off the Shelf. The second life radio show and podcast about books and the people who love them. I'm Kegia Garardi. And this is Simeon Beresford. Join us as we survey the literary scene in our virtual world. Welcome to this episode of Off the Shelf. Simeon is recovering from a cold, so I'm on my own this week. Today our guest is technology journalist Mitch Wagner. He may be better known to people in Second Life as the host of the in-world show Copper Robot. Thank you for appearing on the show, Mitch. Oh, thanks for having me, Kajia. Well, before we start talking about Apple, the iPad, and e-publishing, let's talk about Copper Robot. How long have you been doing the show? It's been uh, about a year and a half. Okay, and how did it get started? Well, this goes way back... um, to uh, an event I used to host when I was working at Information Week during uh, during the Second Life boom in 2007. It went through various names. We called it Geek Chat, Geek Meet. Um, we started out calling it a coffee clutch, but nobody knew what that was, so we had to stop. And uh, we we had a broad range of guests on. We had uh, we actually had the the one of the co-founders of Twitter. I'm pretty sure it was Biz Stone back in early 2007. So that was kind of a coup for us a little bit. And we stopped in early 2008 when we weren't getting a lot of business value out of it. But I kind of missed it. Um, my, my, my focus of my career has been on business-to-business technology, journalism, and more recently a little bit of consumer journalism. But I just wanted the opportunity to interview a wide variety of people, and I missed the conversations. So I picked it up again in early 2009 for myself, independent of my then employers at Information Week. And we've been going on since. That's great. Um, you could do a pretty straightforward podcast. So why did you want to continue doing it in Second Life? Um, I basically, I like Second Life. I like the people in here. Uh, I wanted to do it with um, a live audience. I don't like the word audience because it sounds too passive. They, we encourage people to contribute in the text chat and, and, and really get involved in the conversation. I don't like the word audience, but I don't like the word community either because it sounds too twee and precious. Um <laughs> But I just wanted to be where my friends were, basically. Um, I think live events is going gonna, is gonna to take off on the Internet more and more. Mm-hmm. And this is the best platform for it now. Yeah, I go to several of your interviews, and the live chat is almost as good as the interview itself. It's definitely well, yeah, thank you. involved. Yeah. People feel like they can be involved in your, in your interviews. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love the live chat. Um. Anyone, let's see, your guests that come into Second Life tend to be a little new to the virtual world a lot of times. Do you find it difficult to introduce them to the idea of uh, an interview show in Second Life, or do they just kind of say, okay, whatever? They they get it when they've seen it. You know, they they have a lot of questions. They want to know what's going on. They don't quite understand it. We do... um, we do, we do tests and we answer their questions in email and maybe on the phone ahead of time and we bring them in for an orientation. Um, for the limited amount of Second Life usage that we need for Copper Robot that we absolutely need, we can do we can get people up and running in about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. 
That's what we found as well. They just need yeah. to know how to sit. <laughs> yeah, how to sit, how to talk. Here's your uh, you know, how, to, how to how to how to participate in the chat. How to deal with IMs. Mm-hmm. How to walk around a little bit. That's all they need to know to get started. That's really all anybody needs to know to get started. I find find a lot of people have um, tendency to get confused by the the text chat, especially when they're trying to have a conversation. But it's very distracting. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I encourage people to just participate in the text chat or not as much as they're comfortable with. I can't follow all of it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty fast-paced. Yeah. So, um, um, has anybody... Has, Anybody has been on your show, to your show, knows that you've got a lot of people helping you out with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about who they are and what they do? Well, the two main people are Rissa Maidstone. She's Kim Smith in uh, real life, and she is, I think, COO is her title of World to Worlds uh, Virtual Events Consultancy. They work with real companies, getting them involved in Second Life um, events. Some of their past clients have included IBM and Cisco and United Business Media and Ziff Davis Enterprise. Um, The other person is uh, one of the pseudonymous folks in Second Life. So she goes, her Second Life name is Sarah Skildjurup. It's one of those names with too many J's in it. I don't know what ethnicity it comes from. And she's she's the director. So she handles uh, the video streaming and the set decoration. Uh, Rissa just kind of helps helps out with the logistics of it, and also uh, is is the hostess for the show and welcomes people and makes sure everybody is is settled in and deals with the occasional griefer. Mm-hmm. You just redid the set, didn't you? Yeah, they did. They did. Um, they were redoing their whole island. I think it looks great. Um, it does. I splashed down in the middle of the water. I'm like, I know I've got the right landmark. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna do a joke about that, but I forgot. I was gonna <laughs> tell people like we're sorry if you splash down in the water, and we'll be giving out towels later. <laughs> <laughs> T- towels and legal waivers. You gotta have the legal waivers. <laughs> there you go. Just yeah. It's like, oh, they've changed stuff. Well, it's Second Life. It's constantly evolving. Yeah. So, um, some of you had noticed that you're taking questions for your next chat via Twitter. Uh, yeah. Is that how, how is that working out? Are you getting a lot of good responses or are people just kind of passive about it? Well, we don't, people, we haven't heard much about it yet. Um, I think it's kind of an obvious idea and I'm surprised we didn't think of it right away. We, we, do, we do stream out to the web like you, and, but, but the, the web people are kind of, they're, they're kind of listening at the door mm-hmm. because we don't have a chat bridge. And this is a way to allow them to participate in the conversation easily. Are you doing it pre-show or are you doing it during the show? Yes. I mean, I, I already have a tweet, a tweet deck search set up for CopBot, and I'm checking it once a day. But really, I'm seeing this primarily as a during the show thing. It's a way to do in Twitter what people are already doing in world and in the text chat. When you hit information overload, let me know because I want to see that point. Yeah. Yeah. Like coming at you. Um, which leads to my next question, which is, do you see virtual worlds as an extension of other forms of social media, or do you see them standing out on their own? I, I see virtual worlds as a kind of social media. I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly call it an extension because that implies that one is second to the other, but it's definitely a way to connect with people and, and, and meet people and get involved in conversations and, and do things together. Um, the, 
the chief advantage you have to the virtual worlds is you can do it all in real time. And you also have the three-dimensional visual element and that immersion that we like to talk about so much in Second Life. So it's, it's very different from other social media in those regards, but it is definitely a form of social media. Mm -hmm. I see it as um, something that's grown out of the the forums and the instant message, kind of like Ning in the 3D world now. It's gotten yeah, much, kind of. much more community-oriented, use that word. Yeah, it, it's it's really it's really grown up alongside those things, though. I mean, the roots of this goes go back at least twenty five years. Um, How so? Well, when we uh, the, the muds and the moos, these text based virtual worlds that exists in the early nineties. Um, trying to think, if you Google on, um, there was an article about this that I read that was written in the early nineties, and it featured an interview with um, a Second Life friend who I can only think of her Second Life name now, and I can think of her first name in real life, but I can't think of her last name, which means you can't Google on this. But she <laughs> just, they, described, they described all the things that went on in, in these text-based virtual worlds called Muds and Moos in the early 90s, and it was all very much similar to what we do in Second Life today. Um, moreover, I don't know if you've read the novel Halting State by Charles Strauss. No, that's a new one uh, for me. Oh, yeah, it's a great book. Um, it came out in 2007, and it's set... In the late 2010s, or maybe early 2020s, so it's very, very near future science fiction, and it's a murder mystery set in Edinburgh. But the society that he lives in, everybody uses augmented reality, and they all use it like virtual worlds. Um, so you have you wear these 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 goggles; they look like eyeglasses, and some of them are very stylish horns or whatnot, and they you, you see information overlaid over the world, and your friend could look like a dinosaur, just like they could in Second Life. Um, and when you and everybody plays on MMOs, they're like online games. They're as mainstream as Facebook and blogs today. Um, and um, a lot of the dynamics he was talking about when I was reading it were just uh, amazingly what goes on in Second Life today: the struggles with identity of real life versus Second Life, uh, scripted objects, and, and all this neat stuff. And I asked him if he'd been, how much time he'd spent in Second Life, and he said about 15 minutes. Oh wow. I said, how is that possible? So you know it's so? He said, well, you know, I did these muds and moos in the mid-80s. Mm -hmm. And it was all the same cultural issues. Right. So th this stuff has been around for a while, and it's definitely grown up alongside of the social media that we think of as more mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, the New Horizon Report, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's um, just predictions about where technology is going in the next couple of years, and they've been talking about augmented reality being coming much more mainstream within the next three years. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out. Yeah, I, ha I have been very hot on augmented reality, um, but as the year or two has gone by that it's becoming pioneering, I'm, I'm not seeing much in the way of practical applications for it. Um, so I, I have to hold out the possibility this could be yet another technology like CD-ROMs and, and, uh, and, and virtual reality in the early 90s that just doesn't quite ever take off. I think people are just not even sure what it is. They, when they use it, they know it, but otherwise it's, you know. Well, in a sense, we already have it. You know, if you look up stuff on your iPhone with geolocation, is that not a form of augmented reality? I mean, just because it's not overlaid over your view, 
how important is that, that it has to be overlaid over the view? If I'm standing in a street corner in a city and I go, ah, where's the nearest coffee shop around here? Assuming by some miracle there aren't three Starbucks within eye range. Um, <laughs> you know, I get out my iPhone and I have coffee shop and Google Maps pops up with 15 different coffee shops. Isn't that kind of augmented reality already? Yeah, I think so as well. And by the time you add the street view, it does yeah. definitely. And as somebody who is really bad at reading maps, I really appreciate the street view. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I used Google Street View for something like that when I um, was staying at a, wanted to stay at a hotel in San Francisco. And I saw the address and thought the neighborhood might be a little dicey. So I went up on Street View and I kind of cruised around the hotel. I was like, oh, this neighborhood's fine. This is a great neighborhood. And, <laughs> Then later on, when the cab driver was there, he couldn't find it. We were going down the street, he couldn't find the hotel, and I recognized the building, even though I'd never seen it before wow. in real life, because I was, oh, there it is. Yep. That's augmented that's reality. Definitely, and it definitely makes life easier, which is yeah. what we want from it. Yeah. Um, you also, in your show, you spend a lot of time talking to authors, particularly authors of a science fiction nature. Do you have mm -hmm. a novel in you somewhere? <laughs> yes, yes, but I'm taking Pepto Bismol, and I hope to get the kid. <laughs> it's a novel. Yeah, I'm working. Well, you're writing. a former English major. I think most of us think that at some point we're going to write something. Yeah, we usually think that while we're serving coffee. You know, but would you like extra cream with that? Let, let, let's talk a little bit about Chaucer while you're having your cruller. Um, I, I've, I've, uh, I am writing two novels. Um, I'm in the final stages of revising one of them. Um, I hope to get that out and start looking for an agent for that in the next couple of months. And I'm about 50,000 words into the first draft of, of another one. Oh, are so, they science fiction? Oh, yeah. Is there any other literature? <laughs> oh, there you, Krupp wants to know if you're going to be interviewing yourself so that he can buy the novel. Yes, I, I don't interview myself as much as I did when I was a teenager, but I do every now and then. And <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on Copper Robot, one of the things that attracts me to the show is that you have some great authors that are appearing on there. And mm -hmm. it's definitely as much about books as it is about technology, new media, all the other topics. How did that become such a large part of the show? It was never a conscious decision. I never sat down and said, uh, um, I want to make this primarily a book podcast, but it seems to be evolving that way. Um, I just love books, so I'm... When I, when I think of when I make a list of people I'd like to have on the show, um, it always comes, uh, books seem to predominate that list. Authors seem to predominate that list. Um, Who do you have coming up next? Uh, which authors do you have targeted on your list? Um, we want to get Joe Haldeman back. When I say back, we had him on for Geek Meet a couple of years ago, and he's always a great interview. He's uh, the author of, uh, he's be his best known novel is one of his first, it's Forever War. Um, and uh, he's got a, he's continuing to write. He's been writing for 25 years, and he comes out with about a book every year and a half, so he's very prolific. Uh, we'd like to get Charles Strauss on again. Uh, he's got um, two books coming out. One of them just came out. It was the fifth, uh, the final volume in his Merchant Family series. So that, my wife grabbed that, so she's reading it first. And um, also uh, um, he, he's got another one coming out this summer, a continuation of his laundry series. So I hope to grab him for that. He doesn't know this yet <laughs> that I will be approaching him. Um, we have, oh, there's one really interesting one coming up, um, April 14th, April 21st. I don't know if you know, this is the hundredth anniversary of Mark Twain's desk. 
death. I didn't know that. So we want to get, uh, we're, we're, we're lining up a couple of Mark Twain biographers for the April 14th show, and we'll just talk about Mark Twain and his legacy. Um, Mark Twain is someone that everyone, I think, thinks they know, but he's very, the details of his life are very interesting and I don't think well known to a lot of people. He's just this kind of cartoon character in pop culture at this point. Um, yeah, and, well, also what I found is that a lot of really interesting people also wrote books, even though I don't have them on primarily as authors. Um, Gina Trapani, who was our most recent guest, uh, she's, uh, I think, probably best known as a blogger, and she writes a lot of open source software, but she's written a couple of books. Mm -hmm. And her most recent one is about a guide to Google Wave called, uh, I believe, The Guide to Google Wave. It's an original title. Yes. <laughs> it, it's, it says what it is. That's right. Um, how do you keep up with all of... I know I, I subscribe to a lot of publishing uh, Twitters and things like that. How do you keep up with all the, the news? Uh, you mean the publishing, the book news? Mm -hmm, the book news. I, I actually don't feel like I do that good a job of it. Um, I keep in touch with a couple of authors on their blogs and know when they have things coming up and I approach them. Um, I have relationships with a few of them since I've been active in science fiction fandom for uh, almost you know almost 20 years at this point more than 20 years um so i hear things um but very often i'll i'll hear about i'll i'll, I'll hear an interview on fresh air or see an author on the daily show and be like i wish i could have known about them i would have read their book in advance and i would have had them on the show how do you keep up with with all the news Oh, uh, RSS feeds like crazy and a lot of Twitter. Publishers are really doing, some publishers are doing a really job, good job with tweeting mm -hmm. and engaging with their their audience, which I find interesting. They'll put out a question like, um, you know, we're going to, we're creating a reading list of books set in Ireland. Send us your yeah. favorites. And that becomes an engagement, which is very refreshing for, for business. Yeah, I mean, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's an editor at Tor Books, um, he's discussed that phenomenon in some detail because he's been active in science fiction fandoms forever and, and fanzines, the amateur published magazines that were very active until the internet sort of superseded them. Um, and he points out that a lot of people who are technologists but maybe don't understand publishing say, ooh, you know, the electronic books are going to make books into community objects now, just like blogs are. And he points out that they've always been community objects. Mm -hmm. you, you talk about them with other people, you share them with your friends, people, you write articles about them, you wrote, you, if it was before the internet, you wrote newsletters about them. So uh, that, that's, that, that's, ar that's arguably a more important part of publishing than the actual physical distribution of the books right well in second life obviously what we do is talk about books on a regular basis my to do my to read list grows every weekend yeah so. yeah absolutely just one of the really wonderful things about second life is you find that community here of other readers yeah yeah absolutely you mentioned tour a few minutes ago and i know you do some blog blogging for them how did that come about well i, I was reading the blog from the beginning um, and just posted some comments on the blog and, um, on other people's blog posts in the comments threads. And I did a little book blogging on my own blog and, um, Tori Atkinson, who I believe was one of the editors at Tor. She's now, since then, I think she's moved on to become just a contributor and, um, the community manager, but she approached me 
in December and asked if I wanted to blog for them. And I said, sure. So it's and what a, are you writing about? Are you doing book reviews? Um, just occasionally. What I'm writing about is not often enough is what it comes down to, um, unfortunately. But um, I've been posting the, the Copper Robot science fiction related interviews. I've been posting those to Tor.com. They've, they've graciously allowed that. So that gives it a little more visibility. Um, I did something on uh, <laughs> when I heard about Hot Tub Time Machine, the movie that came out this weekend. Oh, uh, yeah. I actually heard about that in Second Life from the guy who filmed. Apparently, there's some Second Life machinima in the movie because one of the characters is a Second Life enthusiast. Um, and he was the guy who filmed that. He was also, his name, uh, his name in real life is Steve Nelson. And he also filmed the sequences in Second Life in the TV show The Office. So he was telling me about the movie, and my first reaction was, that sounds really stupid. And my second reaction was, well, actually, that sounds really cool. So, <laughs> I, so I just tried to figure out why John Cusack's in it. Yeah, somebody was saying that he, uh, he must have lost a bet or something. But, um, uh, but Roger Ebert really liked it and pointed out that um, in, in John Cusack's entire career, according to, um, according to Ebert, he only had maybe one possibly bad movie. Um, yeah, so I blogged about that. I blogged about um, at one point I blogged about the Star Trek movie because there was something that always bugged me about it about the um, that the really kind of gnawed at me and made me less enthusiastic about the whole movie and the whole series as a whole. So criticizing Star Trek is a good way to get flamed. <laughs> I um, bet. Yeah. There was uh, somebody who'd written for one of the Star Trek episodes for Next Generation talking yesterday, and it was definitely a very, very uh, fan-filled uh, event. So, yeah, Star Trek never dies. Yeah. Um, did you see uh, there was a blogger named Joey Davila? He had a blog post about um, – he writes a wonderfully named blog called The Adventures of Accordion Guy in the 21st Century. Um, and he did a – I've missed that. Yeah, he did a cruel yet funny and true breakdown of the TNG episode. Um, of every TNG episode, basically saying that it, this is a show that was primarily created for teenage boys with Asperger's. Oh, no. So you have uh, Mr. Data being explained the obvious. Mr. Data, when people are cruel to you, sometimes people just act out are cruel to other people because they feel bad. And then you have the counselor. All Star Trek fans can never figure out why Deanna Troy exists because um, uh -huh. she's always like sitting on the bridge and some guy is firing guns and screaming at them and she says, I sense hostility, Captain. <laughs> well, in the universe of Star Trek for the fans, that's a superpower, being able to sense other people's emotions. <laughs> that does explain it. So that's very cruel and yet funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, when it's an icon, it takes that yeah so. well let's take a break and listen to some music from burning babylon d jungle okay. is on the beat 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 album at bagnatune.com <laughs>
Okay, that was Burning Babylon. I, I like their little reggae under underbeat there. Um, now let's talk about e-publishing. The iPad will be out next week, in the next week or so, and I know you're really excited about that one. Oh, yeah, I'm and embarrassed how excited I am about it. <laughs> <laughs> Why is, you know, I was really excited to get my iPhone, but I feel like the iPad's just like a bigger iPhone. What is it so appealing? Why, why do you connect with it so much? Well, I think a bigger iPhone sounds great. You know, there's, there's so many things I do with my iPhone now, but awkwardly because the screen is so small. So the idea of having a better screen, and that's primarily I'm thinking of reading. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea of having a bigger screen just sounds better to me. Have um, you, do you have a Kindle? No. Already? Okay. I just couldn't I'm, see shelling out that much for a dedicated device. Mm -hmm. So you've been reading on the, your iPhone books yeah. and things like that? Yeah, okay. I've, read, I've read books on it. I do as well. Um, do you, a lot of people think that the, the iPad is going to really be that push that e-books need. Do you think it's going to make them more widespread or just kind of a big bubble right now? Um, yes to both. I think it'll be a little bit of an incremental push, um, and maybe even a big push, but it's not going to be a transformative um, It'll it'll make ebooks somewhat more popular, and then continue the momentum that's already building around them. Um, I think they're, but I don't see it as transformative in itself. Simply because books, as they exist now, work pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 it's hard to see. I mean, lo looking back on what the iPod did for for music, um, there was no business channel for electronic distribution of music until the iPhone until iTunes came along. Um, you, you either bought physical media or you had, you had bootleg music that was downloaded unauthorized from the internet. Um, so the I, I, iTunes created a market for selling digital music. Um, it also made it possible for you to carry around all your music in your pocket, um, which sounds like it doesn't really make sense when you've heard it, but then the first time you do it and then you're out as I was 2,500 miles from home and thinking, boy, I'd really like to listen to some Johnny Cash right now and go, wait, I have it with me. <laughs> um, that, then you see the value of that. It's hard to see what particular value ebooks has that, that matches those values for music. Unless you're in the subcategory of people who read really addictively and read a lot of books at once and travel around a lot. Mm -hmm. um, those seem to be the market for the Kindle, I think. Yeah, I think I would fall into that category. Yeah. <laughs> say it. Um, I'm going to be interested to see if uh, journalism, newspapers, and magazines can really leverage the device. It's possible. Um, I, think, I think they will. Scott Rosenberg, who was, by the way, a guest on our Copper Robot, he um, was founding editor of Salon.com, mm -hmm. which is really quite a prestigious thing to be. Um, one of the people who invented the idea of internet journalism back in the day. Um, and he wrote a history of blogging called Say Everything, which we had him on. He did a blog post just this weekend talking about how a lot of the messianic fervor around ebooks and publishing is a lot like CD-ROMs in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, people thought back then that you'd publish all these CD-ROMs and they'd have all this multimedia content and it would be terrific and wonderful. And people just turned out not to be interested in buying them. Um, I think that the publishing industry is going to be getting a lot worse before it gets better. Um, 
right now people are used to being able to get long form journalism for free. Um, and they're not going to be willing to pay for that until they've seen what a world is like without it for a while. Um, and they're going to decide they want those big, big, lovely articles by James Fallows or, um, uh, uh, who's the guy who the food writer, he wrote the omnivores dilemma. Oh, uh, I know who you're talking Michael about. Pollan. Yeah. Thank you. Um, he did a wonderful article for the New York times about the whole history of, you know, basically why America's fat. <laughs> um, and it was such a beautifully written article and you're not going to get that kind of thing unless you're willing to pay the author. And right now I don't think people are willing to pay the author that much. Do you think that's a reflection on just that we aren't a culture that reads as much? Is it a reflection on the fact that we just expect technology to be free? We expect what we read on the internet to be free. Um, I disagree that we're not a tech culture that reads as much. I think we're a culture that reads voraciously and the internet has made us a culture that makes us read and write even more voraciously. But we're used to the idea that this should be free. Um, and I've wondered why that is. And I think that it's because people think that people think they're paying for the physical media. They think they're paying for the physical newspaper or the physical book when really, when you look at the economics of it, they're not. Um, especially in magazine and newspapers, the, the the cost of distribution breaks even with the sale of the of the of the the, the physical medium. It's it's the advertising that really brings in the money, um, and so people think that the physical medium is valuable, but the time of the people who created that medium is not valuable, and I, I think it's actually the opposite. Um, and I'm not, I know a lot of people sound bitter and angry about this, and I'm trying not to be, even though it has threatened my livelihood in the past few years. It's just kind of the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, if if, if I, I've, I've been able to do less and less, I, I got laid off in December, and because of that, I'm doing a lot less journalism. That's just the way it goes. Because mm -hmm. I've got to do other things to bring in money. Right. Well, we've been having this conversation about copyright. And what mm -hmm. most people don't realize is that copyright becomes an issue when it threatens an author's livelihood. You know, they aren't making that connection. Well, I disagree on that. What threatens the author's copyright is, 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 is obscurity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so some very successful writers, notably Cory Doctorow, have, have written about this at great length. You know, the, the pirated book market. Is, I'm not saying piracy is right. I don't know why I'm using the word piracy. I hate that word. I, I'm not saying bootlegging books is right it's wrong you should but it's not threatening author's livelihood as much as obscurity is as much as not being known right. um and also as much as the publisher is not valuing uh writing and, and paying too little um it's and the measures to, to control copyright seem to be a lot worse than the bootlegging is um you know, it doesn't seem like they. It doesn't seem like they learned anything from watching, you know, the, the music industry several years ago with the bootlegging and. The oh, they, they've they've learned a great deal, but but I think they've learned the wrong lessons. The, the lessons they're learning is lock down the internet, um, eliminate pri privacy, eliminate uh, the accused's right to a trial, uh, eliminate the need for evidence against people included accused of copyright infringement. Let the corporations decide who's guilty and what the punishment should be. And also eliminate innovation on the internet. Just stop the internet where it is. Actually roll it back a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. 
but yeah, which comes back to um, what I, I'm a little frustrated by is that the print world seems to want to be applying the same, the same model to make money to e-publishing. And they don't understand why it's not going to work because it does come back to the fact that we're not just paying for the, the idea you were just talking about, about us paying for a, a book that I can pass on to my friend yeah. versus the intellectual part of it. Yeah, you can't, you can't, well, first of all, a lot of publishers do get it and do understand it. Um, but the problem is if, if the problem is the new business model or a new business model has not emerged yet. Um, so even the publishers who, even the people in publishing I know who get it are, are kind of str scratching their heads. And I include myself in that. I mean, I don't know how to make money at journalism, make a living wage at journalism anymore, at least. Um, and the other thing is they're not trying to pass on the publishing model. They're actually trying to restrict it more. I mean, as you just said, you can lend out a physical book. It's harder to do that with an e-book. Right. Um, one of the things that concerns me, I mean, I love this story. My father-in-law, who, who would have been 100 years old if he um, had lived to this year, um, he had an edition of um, the, the Dumas books that he got from an older relative when he was a boy. And he reread those books every few years for about 70 years. So when he died, these books were probably about 100 years old. Um, now, I have favorite books by Robert A. Heinlein that I bought in the 70s that I have been rereading every few years and probably will continue to do so if I live as long as my father-in-law. I, I have no faith that e-books are going to last that long. Mm -hmm. uh, my point is when I buy a book, I want it to be a lifetime investment, and I don't get that faith from e-books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it changes the experience. I'm very picky about what I buy as an e-book and what I buy as a, as a paper book. I really? What are your criteria? Um, I'll, if it's something that I'm going to read and probably just read once, I'll do it electronic. But if I want to buy poetry or a book from a favorite author, I want it to be in paper. So, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's something and, to be said for that. And I think it's just, I think people are seeing it as an either or pro prospect. You either have an ebook or you have a paper book and, you know, that's what your commitment is. You can either be a Republican or a Democrat and that's where you're at. You have no meshing it up and i yeah. think that's part of the problem right now yeah i've come as i've looked into the economics of intellectual property i've come to see myself as more of a a little kind of micro philanthropist if you will or, or a micro investor you know i'll buy i'll buy a piece of software i like even if i could have gotten it for free just to kind of throw the guy a couple of bucks to keep him keep him working on new features yep same thing for me yeah like I've, <laughs> Yeah, and I've bought, I've bought books that I've gotten free copies of from Copper Robot guests, just mm -hmm. kind of for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah, definitely buy things from the, the people that are on our show as well. Yeah. So, uh, where do you see publishing going in the next couple of years then? Or can you, can you even predict it? Um, I think that things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, I think... Uh, uh, I, I think that I, I, I steal a lot of my best ideas on this from Cory Doctorow and Kay, Clay Shirky. Mm -hmm. um, I think things are going to get worse than, before they get better. Um, I think journalism in particular, we're going to have to get used to kind of a nation without journalism, at least on the mid-level for a while. 
Uh, local journalism will continue to survive based on local advertising. National journalism will continue to survive because there's a big market for it, such as the sad state of national journalism is today. Um, but that mid-market stuff at the state level, especially for the smaller states, that's going to go away. Um, and the nation will suffer because of it. Um, publishing is going to become even more of a, an amateur pastime than it was already. Um, editors will continue to get paid less. Um, in the long run, business models will emerge. Um, our children will look at those as obvious as advertising is today. Um, they will forget the names of the innovators and think it's natural law. Um, that books and magazines will, and newspapers will make money based on whatever business models have emerged in the future. Um, as far as the long term goes, I'm, I'm, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but I'm, I'm kind of not even so sure about the future of the economy as it exists anymore. Um, I find when I do my mid-range career and financial planning, one of the factors I have to take into account is that money might not be worth anything in five years. You know, it's kind of mind-blowing and freaky to think about, but it's true. You just scared me. <laughs> I know, it's scary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, stick to science fiction. That's a little bit easier to take, I think. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a reality, is it good? Okay, um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting for the next few years, I think, just to see how things do roll out for yeah, interesting is in the, the Chinese course of it. You live in interesting times. Right. There's going to be a lot of shakeouts. And I also, based on my interactions with authors here in Second Life, see a lot of opportunities for people to empower themselves in publishing too, though. Yeah. Yeah, but do you want people to do that? or And do people want to do that? Do we, do we want to just... I mean, one of the nice things about the publishing models that existed through the 20th century is it gave writers the freedom to sit and write. Mm -hmm. um, do we want these guys out there doing their own marketing and their own lining up, working with artists on cover designs and hobnobbing with the book salesmen? Or do we want to have publishing companies doing that and giving writers the freedom to write? That's true. Although so many of the authors feel like they have to do so much of their own marketing anymore anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah and it's always been a good idea. Um, I mean, some of the most successful writers, I, I think it was Neil Gaiman, maybe, who, um, you know, part of what he built his career on was ability to go out. It might not have been Neil Gaiman. Forget I said the name Neil Gaiman. Um, but one or two really successful writers, part of, their, part of the way they built their career was just being able to go out there and schmooze with the salesmen and the bookstore owners. Mm -hmm. So there's always been a lot of that. But... I think there's still value in specializing. Right. Well, I've kept you way over a half hour, so I just have one more question for you. Yeah, what really are you reading at the mo What are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading the autobiography of Mark Twain. Um, Which one? <laughs> the autobiography. Oh, of the Mark autobiography by Mark the, Twain. The um, the um, uh, I believe the Charles Nieder edition. He wrote, he wrote this, he dictated these massive memoirs of, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of words or something like that before he died. And several generations of biographers afterwards tried to massage them in some kind of shape. And I believe, if I know correctly, the Nieder edition is authoritative. And I'm, I'm being reintroduced to Mark Twain's wonderful nonfiction voice. He speaks so, he has such a contemporary voice. 
basically because he invented the contemporary American writing style. So, of course, his voice sounds contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a classic case of this, this guy writing at this point from about things that happened two or three centuries ago and, and speaking as though he was just some blogger. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm reading that. I'm reading um, there's um, a writer named Tom DeHaven, who I love, um, wrote um, a, a series of novels uh, they're not science fiction or fantasy, but they're about three generations of people working on a very popular fictional newspaper comic strip called Derby Duggan or Derby Dugan. Um, and the one I, one I read was set in the Depression. It's called Derby Dugan's Depression Funnies, and it's wonderful um, about the golden age of newspaper comics when newspaper comic artists were like rock stars. Um, and then the one I'm reading now is Funny Papers, which was the first volume of the series. I'm reading them out of order. And this is set in the 1890s in the, in the, in the heyday of newspaper journalism and newspaper publishing, to tie back to our previous conversation. And it's about the, the, the person who founded the, the Derby Dugan comic strip, which, and that, those are wonderful books, too. Um, and when my wife is done with the uh, Charles Strauss, the latest of the Merchant Family series, I'll grab that. <laughs> so I've got a lot to read now. That How about sounds... you? What are you reading now? Um, I actually just pre-ordered two books that are coming out this week. One is the new Gail Carruthers, which is kind of a steampunk meets paranormal book. Oh, yeah. I, I just She's just a lot of fun. And the new Patricia Briggs, which is another paranormal. And uh, just finished up J.D. Robb, which is a slightly science fiction police procedural. So, oh. yep. With a nice romantic element, because I like that, too. I have no problem admitting it. <laughs> oh, I like it too. I tried. I tried writing. I'm trying to write like a romance plot into my, um, into my uh, current novel, the one I'm fifty thousand words into. But I'm finding out I'm like I'm like Isaac Asimov. I'm really, really bad at writing sex scenes. <laughs> like, oh, I just don't want. I'm just like I tried really, and it just they're bad. And I gotta work. You can, how can you write uh, romance novels without them? So I gotta think about that. <laughs> Well, there are a couple in Second Life that I can introduce you to if you need some pointers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. on the okay. show. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I've, re I've read really good ones. I just, like, I can't really write them for, for, for anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I get really embarrassed when I'm writing. I'm sitting alone in a room and I'm embarrassed writing it. It's just really pathetic. So that, that's a problem with the current novel I'm working on. Um, Maybe you need to bring your wife in Second Life and practice that way. Oh, uh, okay. Maybe Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, I have so enjoyed talking to you like I always do. And uh, thank I've you for enjoyed. being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kajia. Off the Shelf is produced for Radio Real by Kia Garardi and Simeon Beresford. Technical production is by Radio Real. You can find Radio Real on the web at radioreal.org. Music on this program includes works by artists on the Magnatune label. The music in the general introduction is John Playford's All in a Garden Green by Eileen Hadidian and Natalie Cox from their album Dolce Musica, A Contemplative Journey. The off-the-shelf theme music is 1,500 Tons by Burning Babylon from the album Stereo Mashup. And we bid you goodbye with this piece, Hagagasan 14 by Eternal Jazz Project from their album Gratis Jazz. 
You can learn more about Magnatune and their artists on their website at magnatune.com. Off the Shelf is licensed under Creative Commons.